of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 62, March 2023. Fast-talking dudes. Hello, Paul Meyer here. I've been dialect time-traveling as usual. It's a fun job. This month saw me in Alabama in the 1880s for The Miracle Worker, the Helen Keller story. Southwest England, 70 years earlier, for Sense and Sensibility. And Berlin, in the 1920s, for Cabaret. My best wishes to Rochester Civic Theatre and the universities of Memphis and Kansas, now preparing their productions of those shows. It's a pleasure working with you. Break a leg. And a big loud shout-out to Don Swayze. I helped him prepare his dialect for the Irish immigrant lead character in All Saints Day, now in post-production. It's set in modern-day Boston. This is Don's 110th film in his long and illustrious career. I can't wait to see it. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. And I work with three counts. Xerox, Marlboro, the cigarettes, and Coca-Cola. So I make, you know, I do the media. What is the media department? Do their everything on the newspaper, everything on the commercials, movie, everything. If you guessed Venezuela, you are impressive. It was Ideas Venezuela 3, contributed by our prolific senior editor, David Neville, in 2008. Thanks again, David. The subject had moved to California, ten years before the recording was made, hence her lighter accent. For the whole recording, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and drill down to Venezuela on the South America page. Now, this month's challenge. Quiz number 48. Chosen from among the now nearly 1,700 recordings and idea and from every corner of the earth, where did this speaker spend his formative years? Long ago, when I was very young, my father used to have a garden. That garden had a combination of small plants and big trees. Among the plants, we had a lot of roses. I still remember there was a big guava tree. We could even climb. However, with the passage of time, that garden became smaller in shape and none of the family members concentrated in it because of the lack of time. Get the answer next time. No guest this month, just me, on a topic suggested by Cameron, my son and Ideas Executive Editor. He's also Vice President of Paul Meyer Dialect Services and co-producer for this podcast, if I haven't mentioned that before. And he's been my guest three times. For episode number four, when we talked about newscasting, Cameron's a journalist by training, episode 21, when we talked about accents and dialects in the cinema, He's a noted movie critic, too. See MeyerMovies.com. And episode number 35, when we talked about the very first sound recordings. Cameron pointed out that we had explored the extremes of pitch, highest and lowest notes in the human voice, with our old friends Jeremy Fisher and Gillian Kays in episode number 48. So fast talking, or tachylalia, if you like collecting Latin terms for things, would be interesting in the same way, exploring the limits of human potential. Cameron loves topics that involve world records. Me too. So I started there. 
Who is the world's fastest talker? The Guinness Book of World Records is the source cited when you search the internet, though they list fastest talkers only in English. Perhaps there are other languages easier to speak at high speeds? Actor and commercial pitchman John Moshita had been credited as the record holder for a long time. 586 words per minute. But in 1990, Steve Woodmore broke that record at 637 words per minute. Then, a few years later, Sean Shannon was clocked at 655 words per minute. For comparison with those dizzying speeds, I'm talking to you now at about 155 words per minute, less than quarter that speed. But the more I thought about it, the more I began to pick holes in the whole idea of a world record for fast talking. My first problem was, how do you adjudicate intelligibility? Speed's easy to measure, but without intelligibility, the exercise is quite frankly redundant, don't you think? And the feats of speed talking I listened to were mostly, I'm sorry to say, very difficult to understand. Here's a little of Sean Shannon, the world record holder, reciting the to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy from Hamlet. But can you understand him? Considerately, he starts off at a normal pace before accelerating to his record-breaking speed. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or take arms against deceived troubles and by posing the end them, to die, to sleep no more, by sleeping when the heart can thousand not shocks with flesh, there's a constant of wish. For in this dreadful dream, they come in and shut off the mortal combis, because by the airs, spreading these calamities of life. For who would be the wisdoms of time, the presence of wrong, the problems, contribute the pangs, the laws, the laziness of us, and the spurs of the patient matter of the weeks, when he is himself most quietly made with a bare bargain. With fires, bare guts, under real life, the dress of the after death, the indiscovered issues, one of travelers, puzzles well, makes the right of the brothers as we have them, flies we know not. This kind of man comes on the same, which is sickled back, as unbraised, compithens their car, their crystallizers of action. That's Hamlet in verse. See the PaulMeyer.com webpage devoted to this podcast for the whole speech. But when John Mashita, Fran Capo, and Steve Woodmore faced off for the title, Guinness had chosen a long prose passage from Tristram Shandy, the 18th century novel, for the contestants to read. I haven't been able to hear a recording of the contest itself, nor find the passage from the novel they used. If you can help, please let me know. So, competing for the title with different reading passages is a problem. The ratio of multi-syllable words to single-syllable words will make a huge difference. Why? Well, it takes up to four times longer to speak a four-syllable word, like calamity, than a single-syllable word, like dream. Calamity. Dream. Calamity. Dream. Different texts will vary widely in this aspect. A syllable-per-minute count would be a better measure it seemed to me. Another problem is the length of the thoughts expressed in the various passages used, and the percentage of operative words in those thoughts. Why is this important? Well, think about it. A long thought will have a lower percentage of operative words than a series of short thoughts. For example, I decided I had to go to the store today for just a few essentials. I decided I had to go to the store today for just a few essentials. 20 syllables with a minimum of just two operative words, store and a sen of essentials, to stress. That's one stressed syllable in ten, versus I had to go to the store. Six syllables and a minimum of one operative, store. 
one stressed syllable in six. And in English speech, we spend a great deal more time on operative words and syllables, creating what linguists call stress-timed rhythm. And when we listen to someone talk or read to us, our comprehension has as much to do with the rhythm, maybe more, as with the clarity of the vowels and consonants, the individual segments. We tune into the rhythm and melody of a phrase. We tune into the rhythm and melody of a phrase. You follow me in this? Bottom line, the longer the thoughts and the fewer stressed syllables, the faster we can go and still remain intelligible. And if, in those speed tests, the contestants crush the operative words, then they're hard to understand. For example, in a phrase like, I want to know what you want for your birthday. Birthday is the operative word, with birth the stressed syllable. I want to know what you want for your birthday. You don't have to emphasize any other. And you can be very casual indeed with the unstressed words and very fast, without jeopardizing intelligibility in the least. That's hard for clients wanting to improve their English pronunciation to understand. Be casual and lazy, they ask. How can that be right? Aren't I going to be clearer if I enunciate every word precisely? But I point out that I might very well spend twice as long on that single word, birthday, than on all nine of the unstressed words. I want to know what you want for your birthday. I want to know what you want for your birthday. I want to know what you want for your 1.33 seconds. Birthday, 1.66 seconds. That's stress-timed rhythm in action. I want to know what you want for your birthday. I want to know what you want for your birthday, spoken in the syllable-timed rhythm of many other languages, is not so clear to English-speaking listeners. The effort to make each segment clear is counterintuitive and counterproductive. Just doesn't sound like English speech, does it? I didn't change the pronunciation at all, just, just the rhythm. So to find out my own top speed with a fairer test, I wrote a short text using only single-syllable words, and using long thoughts with a nice low percentage of operative words. So whether you want to measure speed by words per minute or syllables per minute, with this passage you get the same result. Here's that passage, at my own fastest rate. So this old guy comes up to me and wants me to tell him how fast I can talk. I told him I didn't know, but like, why did he want to know such a thing? He said he'd heard of a man who could speak four times as fast as the norm. So I said to him, let's put it to the test. And I told him I'd write him a short speech that we could use to test our own speeds, and this is it. So if you want to see how close you can get to the top speeds I spoke of, just use this brief text. Can you do it fast and still make it clear and not make it sound like a speed test? That's 129 words and 129 syllables since all the words are single syllable. In practice, my best time was 20 seconds, or 387 words per minute. I quite impressed myself. But, of course, Cameron had to beat his old man. He shaved more than three seconds off my time for the amazing speed of 460 words per minute. So this old guy comes up to me and wants me to tell him how fast I could talk. I told him I didn't know, but like, why did he want to know such a thing? He said it over a man who could speak four times as fast as the norm. So I said to him, let's put it to the test. And I told him I'd write him a short speech that we could use to test our own speeds. And this is it. So if you want to see how close you can get to the top speeds I spoke of, just use this brief text. Can you do it fast and still make it clear and not make it sound like a speed test? That's still short of those world records with speeds of 500 to 600 words per minute. 
And it's not a fair comparison, of course. The passage I wrote has deliberately long thoughts with a low number of stressed words, all just one syllable. Cameron and I were speaking for just 20 seconds or so. The champions were far more challenged on all counts. But who is the more intelligible? That is the question. Here's a little of Fran Capo, often billed as the world's fastest talking female. She's reading The Three Little Pigs in about 25 seconds. Once upon a time, there's three little pigs. One little pig likes to sing, the second little pig likes to dance, the third little pig likes to sit and think. Then we both come on. 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 But the big question, could you make out the words? I couldn't. Sorry, Fran. Okay, enough about fastest talker claims. When I told you today's topic, I bet you thought about those fast-talking auctioneers. Here's a great example. One of the cattle auction champs, John Corey. One of you Jews got the bid. Who wants me thousand fifty? Now eleven hundred. Now eleven hundred. We're all short here, 1150. Can you do that? I, I can't do that. And Cameron led me into the world of high school and college debate, the cross-examination, cross-X or team format. He was a high school debater and often engaged in this type of speed talking. Instead of the average human speed of 150 words per minute, the policy speakers often speak at 350 words per minute, more than twice the average, to cram in as many arguments and as much evidence as they can in the allotted time, hoping the opposing teams lack the equivalent speed-talking skills and won't be able to respond to all their arguments. Debates are often won or lost this way, Cameron tells me. Here's an example. Several different debaters here. Increase from about a quarter to the one percent of the country GDP not enough to set in the economy to free power will produce a recession oil prices differently than it did 15 years ago. Tend to go up, stay up, throw a serious fight field. We have a solve solve solving mechanism for inflated West This goes away. You cannot benefit from science discovery. The United States must overcome. Use the scary scenarios to shock the public, make action more popular. Your worst evidence will be more in the link debate on the K. Also, alarms of hijack. Let's consider other aspects of Allegro speech. Allegro is often defined in music as quick and lively or cheerful, with allegrissimo even faster. It's odd how we associate high speed with cheerfulness and liveliness. You have to perform comedy fast. We know that instinctively. The old story goes that the director of a comedy gave the leading actor just one note following a rehearsal. Faster and funnier, please. Considering the happy marriage between fast and funny, here's a clip from the 1955 Danny Kaye film, The Court Jester. I die. Just pray that I die bravely. You will not die. You'll not have to fight him. Griswold dies as he drinks the toast. What? Listen. 
I'll put a pellet of poison in one of the vessels. Which one? The one with the figure of a pestle. The vessel with the pestle? Yes. But you don't want the vessel with the pestle. You want the chalice from the palace. Uh, I don't want the vessel with the pestle. I want the chalice from the what? The chalice from the palace. Hmm? It's a little crystal chalice with the figure of a palace. Does the chalice from the palace have the pellet with the poison? No, the pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle. Oh, the pestle with the vessel. The vessel with the pestle. What about the palace from the chalice? Not the palace from the chalice. The chalice from the palace. Where's the pellet with the poison? In the vessel with the pestle. Don't you see? The pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace. Alice has the brew with it. It's true. It's so easy. I can say it. Well, then you fight him. Listen carefully. The pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. Oh, the pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. Good man. Just remember that. Isn't that great? And I think of so-called patter songs like Gilbert and Sullivan's Major General's Song from their 1879 The Pirates of Penzance. Back in my acting training days at London's The Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama, we were taught to speak that as an articulation exercise. Fast, but completely intelligible, was the goal. It's several verses long, but the first verse goes like this. I am the very model of a modern major general. I have information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the voice historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted, too, with matters mathematical. I understand equations, both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. Here's the English National Opera's uh, sung version. I am the very model of a motivated general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fight historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. About my normal theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. And I just had to include this little snippet of Tom Lehrer's The Elements Song set to the same Gilbert and Sullivan tune. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Such fun. In the whole song, Mr. Lehrer sings the around 448 syllables in just over a minute. Very impressive. I put the text of the song on the webpage for this episode, if you want to play around with it yourself. I remember a valuable direction I once got during a voiceover session. The 30-second commercial I was booked for was terrifyingly overwritten. The clients wanted every single fascinating fact about their amazing product shoehorned in. And my job was to read it all in 28 seconds. Oh yeah, and make it sound natural and conversational? <laughs> Good luck. My first take, I rushed. The director's single note was simply, hurry slowly. I'd never forgotten that paradoxical advice. In other words, don't let the audience know you're going unnaturally fast. The secret is to relax. By relaxing, the articulatory muscles can work faster, it seems. If you're a scientist in this area, let me know if that's true. And when you hurry slowly, you can speak in a normal register. You, you hide the speed. 
you hide the effort. Nowhere is this truer than in those radio and TV commercial disclaimer tags. You know, some restrictions apply, offer void when prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included, not responsible for damage if not used in accordance with the directions in print so small you can't possibly read them. <laughs> Before the days when you could digitally change the speed of a recording, this was a skill much in demand in the voiceover business. The same skill required to make speech intelligible at high speeds is also helpful when speaking in gibberish or, or when scat singing. Take, for instance, the famous Blues Brothers performance of Rubber Biscuit, first made famous by the Chips in 1956. Though Dan Aykroyd is singing mostly nonsense, no one would question his amazing ability to speed sing. Very funny. In nineteen ninety five, I interviewed Kenneth Branagh on the set of Hamlet being shot at Shepperton Studios in England. I published the interview in the scholarly journal The Drama Review, under the title With Utter Clarity. One thing Branagh said really impressed me. He said, quote, I encourage actors to understand that Shakespearean characters think more quickly than we do, and probably speak more quickly. And that, well done, is an unusual and rather effective device. It's exciting when swiftness of thought is conveyed in the theatre with utter clarity. But we've all heard someone say, Slow down! You're speaking too fast! I can't understand you! So, is a slow delivery automatically easier to understand? I suppose if you held my hand over an open flame and forced me to give a yes or no answer, I'd have to say yes. But here's a favourite comedian of mine, Jackie Mason, on Jews in restaurants ordering scrambled eggs, proving it's possible to speak very fast and intelligibly, and get the laugh. You ever see a Jew order scrambled eggs and french fries? It's an emotional experience. It's a major problem. Listen, I don't want the eggs over light. I don't want it too light. I don't want it too heavy. I don't want it low. I don't want it high. I don't want it very scrambled. I want it slightly scrambled. But I don't want it too soft. I want it a little hard. I don't want it too hard. And I don't want a lot of eggs. I want a little eggs. And I don't want it on the same plate. I want it on another plate. Then I want the french fries, I don't want them well done, I don't want the medium, I don't, and I want it on another plate. Then I want the coffee, I don't want the coffee high, I don't want it too hot, and I want it hot, I don't want it too hot, I want it pretty hot. Then I want the toast, I don't want it well, I don't want it medium, I like it in between well, and then I want butter, I don't want the butter on this side, I want it on that side, and I want it in another plate. Then I want the cream cheese, I don't want the cream cheese near the butter, I want it next to the butter, I want it. and I want a lot of cream cheese, I want a little cream cheese, and I don't want it hard, I want it soft, and I I want it on another plate, then I want another chair, and I want another table. I want another glass, I want two more chairs, I want two more napkins, I want another floor, I want another building. I find that hilarious. So, my advice to public speakers of any kind, echoing Sir Ken, 
is to think quickly so you can deliver the thoughts swiftly. Now, I'm very grateful for slow French on the internet, because my French is lousy, but when I'm listening to my native language, English, too high a speed is the least likely culprit if I fail to understand the speaker. Fuzzy articulation, muddled thinking, etc., are much more likely to be the root causes. With that final thought, thanks for joining me. For free extra material found only on my website, and for links to everything I've cited today, under the copyright doctrine of fair use, of course, go to paulmeyer.com, choose in a manner of speaking from the other services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode number 62. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. I got a great email from Patrice Binaisa, a student at the Berkeley Repertory School of Theatre. He told me that his professor, Rebecca Castelli, assigns listening to this podcast as a class activity. That's great. Thanks, Patrice and Rebecca. Join me next time. The topic will be the Venerable Oxford English Dictionary, still published as an immense 20-volume print edition, as well as an online version. My guest, Catherine Sangster, has been in charge of the OED's pronunciations for the last 11 years. We'll cover lots of topics, including the large numbers of Indian English words now being included in the dictionary. And I plan to ask her, as a dictionary maker... How do you decide what's the right pronunciation? Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>